0: Good morning, it's good to see you all here. If you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm just going to read the first two verses to set us up for uh, the message today. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ Father, it is our desire that we would be such a people to whom grace and peace are multiplied. Every one of us, without exception, is in need this morning of your grace and your peace. Even those of us who may not be aware of how much we are in need of your grace and peace, we are in dire need all the same. And I pray as we examine your servant Peter and the testimony of Scripture concerning him that we would be strengthened and encouraged as we see your grace at work in his life and as we consider how we too may follow you as he did. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today begins what will be, Lord willing, a uh, longer (laughs) study through a book of the Bible, two books of the Bible. It is the plan to begin and finish 1 Peter and then go immediately into 2 Peter. And this is the first book, for the most part, where we have quite a lot to say about the author. We spent First 18 months or so together in the letter to the Hebrews, and we do not know very much at all about the author. We don't have a name, we can't place him necessarily. I have my own ideas about who it might be, but the Spirit ordained that we wouldn't know exactly who it was. With the prophet Haggai, all we know is his message. With the prophet Habakkuk, much is the same. We just have the word that was spoken to him. And Jonah, we do have a little bit of data about his life, but that really just comes from the text itself. And so Peter is the first character we meet where there is significant data about who this person is who writes the book outside of the book itself. In fact, most of what we know about Peter is not found in First or 2 Peter. So I hope that you'll bear with me as we spend this Sunday examining the man. It's the first chance we've had as a church since we came here to do that. And that raises a natural question. Why should we study the man? In some ways, the identity of the person who's writing the book does have some bearing on the interpretation when we know who it was. When we don't know who it is, then it's purposeful that the Spirit excluded that bit of information. Or if we don't know much about that person, it's purposeful that the Spirit prevented us from having much about them. So it is still a question, why should we spend time studying a person? We're supposed to be studying the Lord Jesus, I thought. We're supposed to be focusing on the Lord. Why spend a whole sermon focusing on a man, But understand that Jesus' incarnation and his interaction with sinners is a central part of his mission. We would not know of the patience of Jesus were he not incarnated to show patience to sinners. We would not know much of his mercy if it were merely theoretical and in heaven, if he did not come and show mercy to the likes of the demoniac and the woman at the well and all these different people, the display as it unfolds in his life is part of the point. And that's why you and I, brothers and sisters, don't need to have a one-on-one relationship with Jesus in the flesh right now because we have the record of his life and we can be assured of his mercy, his patience, and his kindness, his goodness, his holiness, his wrath, and all the above because of how he behaved here on earth. And the people that he interacted with are part of the story. There is no other way it can be. One of my favorite examples of this is, of course, John the Baptist. For whatever reason, God ordained that John would be a central part of the beginning of each gospel. And you're not allowed, as far as the Scriptures are concerned, to know much about the beginning of Jesus' ministry without reference to John. In a way, the people that Jesus interacted with are, uh, to borrow a metaphor from Paul, they are the jar of clay that houses the treasure as it is being presented to you. And so we must understand who these people are that the Spirit Himself ordained would convey the Scriptures, to us. main point of Peter's life is Jesus. And it is his mission. Yet, as we see the central significance of Jesus in the life of Peter, it gives us strong encouragement. I think in many ways, Peter is one of the most helpful figures to us for encouragement's sake. I don't know about you, but when I consider the life of Paul post-conversion, post-Damascus Road, it can be quite discouraging. Why can't you be like Paul, is the voice in my head, but not so much with Peter. I think in some ways we look down on him, even still. But in that, I think there's great encouragement for us. If you want to give an overarching theme of this passage, I mean, we're, we're really just going to spend time on this one word. And if we follow this pace of one word per sermon, we should finish up around the time that Jesus comes back. Um, so you can just settle in, but fear not. Uh, but the overarching theme, uh, and I think part of the fruit of providence at work in Peter's life, is to help us understand the mercy and patience of our Lord. So what do we know about Peter? Well, first, he is a Jewish fisherman from Galilee. And I hope it it won't offend you that much of the sermon will be me just recounting the biblical record of Peter's life to you and then making comments on it. This is how Matthew says it in Matthew 4, 18. This isn't the first time that we encounter Peter as far as the chronological record is concerned, but... This is important. He's a fisherman. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. I think it's interesting that Matthew needs to clarify for us that that's why they're throwing a net into the sea, like that there's any other context where you'd just be randomly throwing a net into the sea other than being a fisherman. This is well known, that they were fishermen. The four first disciples were fishermen, But it's important, I think, that we need to think about this. This event, as I said, is not the first encounter that they have with Jesus. This occurs after the episode that we find in John's Gospel, when John tells his disciples, there he is, behold the Lamb of God. And they begin following him, and Jesus looks back, and he sees some of John's disciples following him, and he says, what are you seeking? Master, show us where you're staying. Come and you will see. So this is after the fact, and he calls them to be his disciples, officially. And he also changes his name before this event. So Andrew, the story goes, he goes and finds Simon, his brother, brings him to Jesus, and Jesus' response is, so you're Peter, son of John? You're Rock. So It's not Rocky, as the message renders it. It, It's not an adjectival form. It's literally the word Rock. Um, So Jesus says, your name is no longer Simon. You'll be called Rock. And later he explains why. Um, It wasn't used as a personal name. It wasn't a common name at that time. So this is after both those episodes. And he walks by the sea. They're still working for their dads, James and John, Andrew and Simon. And he says, follow me. You know the story. This, this um, This is how it unfolds. But the main idea I want to draw from this idea of him being a Galilean Jewish fisherman is that he has no unique qualifications for ministry. Many have talked about how maybe this profession of being a fisherman uniquely prepared Peter, Andrew, James, and John for ministry, but that's just crazy talk. Um, Here's what Jesus says after the miracle of the, the, the massive catch. Simon's freaking out. Peter's freaking him out. He, he says, Get away from me, for I'm an unholy man, essentially. He says, Do not be afraid, for from now on, you'll be catching men. And so people try to read into that and, like, Well, see, they are, understand the methods of fishing, and so they're uniquely prepared to be fishers of men. And that's just reading into the text, and it's silly. If you, to say that, you must know hardly anything about fishing or hardly anything about what it means to fish for men. As if being handy with a net is somehow more helpful in preparing you for ministry. Like, I don't, I don't see how the art of casting a net or the pattern of migrations in fish really helps you preach the gospel. Certainly, there are things that you can learn in any profession and from fishing that will help you in life. Patience. If you've ever been a, uh, into fishing at all, you've got to know something about patience. Also, unmet expectations. Uh, That's why they call it fishing and not catching. You just go out and you sit there with the lure in the lake and just have a fun time catching nothing. Also, uh, things can be smelly. And sometimes in life, things are not pleasant in ministry and in regular life. But, you know, people do this with Paul as well. They say, well, his training in the law and as a Pharisee uniquely equipped him for ministry, That's just crazy talk as well. If you read closely Philippians 3, he considers all his progress in Judaism to be rubbish, certainly knowing the Scriptures helped him later, but he had to unlearn a lot of what he thought he knew. So what's the point? The point is this, is that you do not need unique qualifications in order to be useful to the Lord. You don't need them This is how Paul says it himself in 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The weak and despised and foolish and the unfit for ministry. Paul and Peter especially are examples of that. Not even being a Jew gave Peter unique qualifications for being useful. It was important that the twelve, including Judas, were Jews. But not for their usefulness generally. In fact, their expectations as Jews for what the Messiah would be hindered them in most circumstances, for clear submission and dependence on the Messiah and and being okay with what Jesus came to do. So what's the takeaway for us? Um, You really only need one thing in order to be preeminently useful to the Lord. And that is a genuine following of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all you need. It's all Peter really needed to do. And in fact, whenever Jesus summons anyone to begin their path of usefulness to Him as a disciple, it's follow me. Peter becomes a spokesman and a quasi-leader of the twelve. I think that's some indication that he may have been the oldest among them. We'll look at two examples of... Peter kind of speaking as, in, in some sense, representing the, the thoughts of the twelve. An episode that are, two episodes here that we'll look at are very famous and well-known, but I want to say a few things about them under this heading as an encouragement to you. Do you remember the story after a hard day of ministry and feeding the 5,000, Jesus tells his disciples to go to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And so they get in the boat, and the storm is tossing them around. They're in the middle of the sea, and he begins walking and intends to pass them by, and they freak out because they think they're seeing a ghost. And he says, do not be afraid, for it is I. And Peter says, this is from Matthew 14, if it is indeed you, tell me to come to you. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So connecting that with the previous point, that fishing gave Peter no unique qualifications for ministry, a fisherman especially uh, knows intuitively that the surface of water isn't going to hold you up. So in many ways, his experience with water growing up around the Sea of Galilee probably hindered him or was a challenge to him in his request, command me to come to you on the water. And you know the rest of the story. Jesus says, come to me. And he walks out on the water. And then he looks around at the waves and the wind. And he begins to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. There's a pattern here in this story and in the rest of Peter's life up into a point where he begins well and then things don't go so well. Things start out okay. But then there is failure. So what's the takeaway? What's the encouragement for us? I think it's this, that God uses those who are weak in faith. Even those who are weak in faith. Like We understand intuitively, I think, because of just a general awareness of Scripture, that God uses the weak. But it's not just that He uses things that are weak, but even things that are weak in faith. Paul says himself, for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. What we saw under the last heading is that the only qualification you need in order to be useful, to be used mightily by the Lord is a desire, a real following of Jesus. But the point from this story, this modifies that a little bit to say that your desire to follow him doesn't even need to be perfect or 100% focused all the time. The Lord does not grant you, if you're waiting around for this to happen, it's never going to happen. The Lord does not grant you faith that never falters. Or faith that is never in question. The point is not the intensity of your faith. Do you understand that, brothers and sisters? The point of your walk with the Lord is not the intensity of your faith. Or the soundness of your convictions, but the stability of Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who's still standing on the water and the surface of that liquid is not going to give way because he's the Lord of the universe. And Peter, who is sinking, whose faith is failing him, yet cries out to the Lord, Lord, save me. I didn't have enough faith to believe in you to keep walking across the surface of this liquid, but I believe in you. But please save me. A person who will cry out, Lord, save me, in the midst of weak faith is 10,000 times more suited for the Lord's work than one who thinks that they have it all together and never dares to show any weakness. It's un American to be weak, it's unsightly to be desperate. It's humiliating to have problems and to admit that you're not enough, ever. There's a popular statement that goes around occasionally, because of Jesus, I am enough. And I wish I could say certain things about statements like that and you not be offended by the language that I would use to describe that. It's awful. You're never enough. Jesus is always enough. That's the point. We're the ones sinking because of weak faith. Jesus is sufficient to draw us up out of the water and out of our trouble. The point of the Gospel is this. You will never be enough. You are never enough. And Christ is always enough. Part of the point of the Gospel is to show us that the sufficiency is always His. You don't level up and then become self-sufficient as a Christian. In fact, Christian maturity is very much an increase in your dependency on Him. So why does He do this? Why does God work this way? Use those that are weak in faith. I think He magnifies His patience towards us as He shows us that the sufficiency belongs to Him. And it also gives us an opportunity for a gut check, I think. Are you as patient as the Lord Jesus? With those that are weak in faith. You see the, the water, the, using the metaphor, stretching it a bit. If you see the water breaking under a brother or sister and they're not trusting the Lord Jesus enough and they have to cry out, Lord, save me, and they're, they're in a mess, and you look at them and you're like, Pfft. figure it out, buddy. Do better. That's the message of our culture. We need to grow in our patience. Do you feel weak in faith, brother or sister? Has the surface of the water broken under your feet? Have you started out so well only to find yourself about to be overtaken by the waves? And is it no one's fault but your own? Then cry out to him, Lord, save me. For the believer and the non-believer, that is our cry. You know, that's one of the reasons that the Bible says we're being saved. God's not satisfied with the glory of only saving you once. He saved us then and He saves us each day as we cry out to Him, finding that we are insufficient and He possesses all the sufficiency. Lord, save me. We also see another example of this where things start out well (laughs) with Peter and then they end uh, rather poorly, to put it mildly. And you hopefully know the story well. This is Peter's confession and his profound blunder. So the pattern continues. Matthew 16, if you want to turn here in your Bibles. Significant passage for many reasons, especially in view of it being Reformation Day next Sunday. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, "Why do, what, who Sorry, do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Such clarity. Such boldness, such demonstration of faith. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, Simon, son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound. Uh, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Meaning right now, because his hour had not yet come. So if that's where Matthew stopped recording the details of this event, we would think, man, Peter has made such progress. From a person who couldn't do something as simple as walk towards the Lord Jesus, there's the incarnated Messiah right there commanding Him to walk on the waves. Couldn't you just maintain faith for, I don't know, 15 seconds? Like however long it takes to go from the boat to where Jesus is. And and then he matures. He has this declaration of faith. He's growing in the grace of the Lord. But of course, Matthew continues. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from You, Lord. This shall never happen to You. But He, Jesus, turned to and said to Peter, Get behind Me, Satan. You are a hindrance. To me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And I just want to issue a caution to all of us. Theological clarity on one point, or even in one major area, is no safeguard against ignorance, confusion, and presumption in another. Peter knew who Jesus was. God himself had revealed it to him. But he walked in presumption and set his mind on the things of man. In a whole other area, humility is the way forward, then. I think it's so possible for many of us who maybe see and can look into our past and see God developing us through many different phases of theological development, if we've read good books, especially in view of it being Reformation Day, I think this is a temptation for us, Reformed brethren. Pride is not unique to our tribe, brothers. But it is especially ugly, even ghastly, and and, and so hypocritical for a camp that says we major on grace and the mercy of God to become proud and presumptive in our theological clarity. Have we come to declare the beauty of the Lord or have we come to declare the beauty of our own presumed theological maturity? Brothers, these things should not be but back to the main point of the text and the main encouragement consider what you would do if you were in Peter's shoes or what Jesus would have done to Peter what you would expect Jesus to do after saying that are you as patient as Jesus in this episode Peter should have been fired what he deserved I mean, he had just confessed that you are Yahweh. Essentially, there's no getting around, beating around the bush of what Peter is acknowledging. He's acknowledging that Jesus is in fact the incarnated almighty God. And then he takes it upon himself to instruct Yahweh. Should have been fired. But Jesus rebukes him. And he doesn't put into question his status as a disciple. Surely, if Peter didn't repent of his rebuke of Jesus and and kept telling him, you can't go to the cross, you can't go to the cross, essentially, then it's doubtful that Peter would have continued following Jesus. But after this, as we'll see in 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 a little bit, Peter still doesn't get it. He's... His denial is proof of that. He's still setting his mind on the things of man. So he at least stops telling Jesus, you can't do that. But in his heart, he still believes this can't happen. His understanding of the Messiah is, needs to be unlearned. And he won't listen to Jesus. He still has that, that arrogance in his heart that he thinks he understands the prophecies about the Messiah better than the Messiah does. Are you as patient as Jesus is towards Peter? Towards people that just don't get it? Side note, I just need to say this. This is fascinating. Satan does not work in ways you might think. Real satanic activity is not to make you like a demon or all that Dan Brown type stuff. It's just to set your mind on the things of man. Did you see it? Get behind me, Satan... You are a hindrance to me because you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. What is of the world, as John says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, that is real satanic activity. That's the real threat that wages war against our souls. So, back to this pattern that we see in Peter's life. It's this negative pattern. It begins well... It starts out okay, he started walking out on the water, he confesses Jesus as the Christ, and then it ends kind of poorly, to put it mildly. He's about to die in one episode, and then Jesus calls him Satan in another. That's not going well. Another example of this pattern we won't spend a lot of time talking about is the Mount of Transfiguration. He, Peter is just a loudmouth speaking uh, when he should not. There's, there's an exhortation on that on both sides, right? He should speak with his confession of Jesus as the Christ, but he should have kept his mouth shut at the Mount of Transfiguration. So some of you need to speak up more, and some of you may need to not speak as much as you need to. Just be instructed by the life of Peter. I'll leave that there. Peter refers to the Mount of Transfiguration in both of his letters, but particularly in 2 Peter, he says this, For when he, speaking of Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, And that's when he stops (laughs) recounting the episode. If he had kept recounting the episode, he could have said something like this. And I totally blew it because I spoke without knowledge. The father himself had to tell me to shut up. This is my son. Listen to him. Is the corrective from heaven because Peter wants to make a tent for Jesus for Moses and Elijah, and he missed the point of the vision altogether. And God has to, the Father has to speak again from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So it starts well. He's able to see this vision, and then he blows it. This pattern continues, but it does begin to shift. and And I haven't really delved into the significance of this. A ton, but I do think this is is significant for us to see that that the pattern changes. And before we move on to see the change in this pattern, I want to say this is not unique to Peter, right? All the disciples show this pattern. They begin well and then it doesn't end so well. And they have to be restored in some so the pattern of starting well and then things going poorly. But near the end of Jesus' ministry, we see a shift, especially in Peter. We see this in the episode of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And I think in some ways this is an underrated story. John is the only one that recounts this episode to us. And it's underrated particularly as it relates to the the progression in in Peter's life and his own maturing. Here's the story. This is from John 13. He came to Simon Peter But is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For we, he knew who it was who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. That's from John 13. So the pattern shifts, as I said. He starts off poorly, rejecting this gesture from Jesus, saying, no, don't do that to me. And he... It, there you 've got to ask you know what is going on in peter 's mind? He had watched Jesus wash the feet of the other disciples around the table we don 't know how many more had how, how many of the disciples he had washed before he came to Peter, but the indication is that he had at least washed a few of their feet before he came to Peter, so that didn 't bother him very much. It was just that he would wash his feet so <clears throat> he 's not thinking clearly in a couple of ways, and maybe he's just he doesn 't know what to do and just panicking like this is this is this is unsightly, for our master to be washing our feet. And then he comes to him and be like, no, you're not going to wash my feet. Starts off poorly, but ends in a better place. So this is the shift in the pattern in Peter's life. Starts off poorly, very poorly, and then some improvement, though not perfection. In a word, the pattern shifts from presumption leading to failure To a different situation where he begins in failure or a misunderstanding and ends in some form of repentance, though not perfection. This is why the life of Peter should be such an encouragement to you. This is the shift that the Holy Spirit enables you to make. Friend, you may be under an inaccurate impression that to be a Christian means that you never fail. Or that you're no longer struggling with sin. This is why many non-believers charge Christians and those in the church with hypocrisy. But the point is that we are not perfect, but by God's grace, this shift is available to you. We are in a pattern of sin and inadequacy being exposed and running to the Messiah for help. That's what it means to be a Christian. That is what Jesus does with Peter even after This episode, this pattern of starting off really poorly and ending in a better place continues with Peter. And you know where we're going. This is with Peter's denial. You know the story well. This is Matthew's account. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Starts in a really poor place in his mind. Presumption. Arrogance. Disagreeing with the Messiah again. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. See, he's kind of a spokesman for the rest of the disciples here. But he's the one who initiates and says, no, clearly not I. Peter was there when Jesus said this in Matthew 10. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So when Jesus says to Peter, you will deny that you know me three times. It won't be a slip of the lip, like maybe that was a denial or not. Nothing in question. You will deny me hardcore three times. It's interesting, I think, that God chooses to use as the primary preachers and ministers of the New Covenant, Peter and Paul, who had committed sins that otherwise would be unforgivable in our minds. Persecutor of the church, denier of Jesus, three times in the same night. But this pattern that we saw this shift, this change from starting out well and then ending really poorly, but rather starting out poorly and then ending in a better place continues with Peter. He starts off in presumption leading to his denial, and yet it ends in repentance and restoration. Here's how Luke records the final denial. But Peter said to him, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So they, they were in a situation where he could see Jesus and Jesus could see him and, and even hear what Peter was saying. So Jesus den- uh, Peter denies him the third time. And Jesus is there, maybe in the courtyard, maybe being mistreated by the soldiers. And Jesus turns and looks at him right after the third denial. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You know, Paul had his thorn to keep him humble. And I can't help but wonder if the memory of this utterly painful denial and this bitter weeping and the face of Jesus looking at him after he had denied him for the third time in the same night is what kept Peter humble for the rest of his life. This is why, one of the reasons why, the Lord uses those who are weak in faith and who are aware of the fact that they are weak in faith. So you won't be presumptive and proud and boastful Or as Paul said, so that you won't be too elated. You have not yet come to grasp the gravity of the gospel until you begin to realize that hell and suffering are not the scandalous things about our faith. Rather, what is unthinkable, what ought to shock us, is that God forgives and welcomes and qualifies and commissions people like Peter and people like you and people like me. Peter didn't just have like, well, you haven't lost your salvation. He's completely restored. You know the rest of the story. He's restored to be the leader of the disciples yet still after this. The commissioning of those that are weak in faith, it seems terribly inefficient. You know, God could use angels if He wanted to. Or more sanctified versions of us to reach the nations. But the Lord has willed that His truth would triumph through us. Those who, like Peter, struggle to trust the Lord Jesus like we should. After Peter is restored, we don't have time to look at all the episodes. Uh, This could have been a much, much longer message. Uh, He he is the first to preach the first ever Christian sermon. Filled with the Spirit, he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews that are gathered there for Pentecost. And we see that his receiving of the Spirit... The same Spirit that is available to you is more important to the change in His demeanor and His boldness than sight of the resurrected Messiah. Because even seeing Him right before Jesus gives the Great Commission, some are doubting in their hearts. Jesus Himself says, "Even if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. So, seeing the real resurrected Messiah, it was important to be an eyewitness, but it took the Spirit being given. They had to wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit to be transformed into bold proclaimers of the gospel. And that same Spirit is available to you. Peter says in 2 Peter, I believe it is, that you, he's speaking to the church, have attained a faith of equal standing with us. Him being an apostle, him being an eyewitness to the sufferings of Jesus, that didn't put him on a different plane than us. He has unique qualifications for being an apostle because Jesus called him to do such. So that comes with a unique job description. But our faith is of equal standing with His because we've received the same Spirit. He's imprisoned and released, and after His release by the angel, or escape by the angel, if you will, uh, He then travels to other regions and proclaims the gospel there as well. It, but that episode of him being released from prison by the angel it shows that he's not yet perfect because the whole thing is so unbelievable to him that he thinks he's dreaming it's just a reflection of the doubt of the, those who are in the room praying together and they, they think it's just Peter's angel that has showed up, right? That it's easier to believe that you have a, an apparition of someone's appearance in an angel than it is for an angel to go and release Peter. It's just weird. Like, like the first Christians struggled in their faith. Peter himself. But I want to drive this point home. The Lord uses imperfect people who will yet trust him. This is from Second Timothy Second um, Timothy 2: 19 through 22. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal: The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house. There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And the Old Testament equivalent of that is this. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect towards Him. Not literally meaning perfect because that didn't exist outside of Jesus. But if you trust in God, if He is your hope and trust, He commits Himself. He has obligated Himself to show Himself strong on your behalf. And this last episode that we'll look at of Peter's life shows this same pattern of trust yet imperfect leading to repentance. And this is seen in the incident at Antioch. Now, there's a lot of setup we could do here. We'd read huge chunks of Acts. We're not going to do that. But you know the story. So Peter receives the vision of the sheet coming down. Multiple times it happens, and and the word is, don't call uh, what I have called clean, do not call common. And this is preparing Peter for ministry to the Gentiles. And then eventually, servants from Cornelius come and bring him so that he might preach the gospel and Cornelius is explaining this whole vision to him when he finally gets there. And this is what Peter says in Acts 10. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand. So this is kind of a moment of clarity for Peter, right? Or should be. Clear, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. And the household of Cornelius is converted and, and The gospel begins going to the Gentiles, and this begins happening so much, also through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, that the Jerusalem council is called to really figure out, uh, do Gentiles need to become Jews first in order to become Christians, or, or in addition to becoming Christians, do they have to be Jews too and keep all the law of Moses? So they have their first ecumenical council, if you will, to decide this very issue. And after there had been much debate, this is from Acts chapter 15, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. This is, this is almost Pauline. It's so clear. It's, it's ironclad logic. He understands that God is saving the Gentiles. And James himself goes on to quote the Old Testament that this precedent has already been set that he will be the Savior of the Gentiles too. So why in the world is he drifting back into hypocrisy in Antioch? Some people come from James and it's likely that they're telling them the situation, that they're being persecuted in Jerusalem by the circumcision party. And because of that difficult situation going on in Jerusalem, Peter down in Antioch starts just hanging out with the Jews. Starts only eating at the Jewish table. Did you know that God cares what table you sit at? At potluck? Who you hang out with? So Peter's hanging out with only those that are eating kosher food and hanging out with the Jewish Christians and kind of disregarding or not really showing preference to the Gentile Christians. And it's not because... I don't don't think we should reconstruct it this way at all. It's not because he's disagreeing with this theology. He's just acting out of step with it. That's what Paul says. But when I saw that their conduct was not in line with the gospel... So he starts out good, but he struggles, but then he's restored. So here's, here's the situation. This is as Paul recounts it in Galatians. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. i like to give that verse to our Catholic friends. The first pope is condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with... the gentiles to live like Jews. So Peter's rebuked, he's brought low, he's acting out of step with the gospel, but he's restored, he continues his ministry. In fact, he writes 1st and 2nd Peter after this incident. God continues to use him even though he had become a hypocrite at least in that Example And he returns to a full embrace of the theology of God being the sufficient Savior for all men, not just the Jews. This is what he says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you, speaking to all the Christians that he's referring to, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people. He clearly would not say that to an exclusively Jewish group. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's theologically identical to Ephesians chapter 2. this is what he says in 2 Peter. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that he doesn't say adorn your faith with eating kosher food or hanging out with Jewish people or pressing into your Jewish heritage. He essentially repents in his theology from his hypocrisy. He doesn't continue as a hypocrite. And this is all under the heading of an encouragement that God uses people who are weak in faith and who struggle with hypocrisy. We can fast forward to the end. We don't know much about Peter's death other than it was prophesied at the end of John's Gospel that he would be crucified. Church legends tell us that he was crucified upside down because he would not be executed in the same way as Jesus. We don't know if that's true. It, It may be. But we know, we at least know, that he glorified Jesus even until his dying breath. So I want to give you a few takeaways from just these four or five episodes from the life of Peter as we begin to hear what he has to say to us in this letter. Number one, if you think you have arrived, in your theology or in your maturity, you're in trouble. What keeps tripping Peter up is that he presumes that he's arrived. I'm an apostle. I'm a disciple. I'm one of the chosen of Jesus. I'm clearly kind of the leader here. And so he takes it upon himself to tell Jesus he's wrong. If you think you've arrived, you're in trouble. Number two, <clears throat> you will be a work in progress until the Lord takes you home. And if you can't acknowledge that you are a work in progress and that there are still lots of of work, there is still lots of work to be done in your life and, and the, the, the facade you present is one that needs no correction, that needs no alterations, and that isn't a work in progress, then you're being hypocritical. Number three, the Lord wants to be served by people who know that they are not qualified in themselves. God qualifies us. Any qualification you have for ministry, any ability you have, what do you have that you haven't received? God is the one who is sufficient. Number four, repent. This is the shift that occurs in Peter's life. And that just continues until his dying day, at least as far as the record is concerned. He starts off poorly, and then he repents. You have to embrace that pattern or this life will, this Christian life will be preeminently frustrating to you. God's purposes in your life are not to guarantee you a spiritual or physical or economical state of stability, but to bring you into deeper repentance always. Number five, (laughs) your repentance will be imperfect There's no indication at any point in Peter's life that he had repented enough to stop. (laughs) If you think that's possible in your life, you're in trouble. And any repentance we come to... I I was thinking about this the other day. It is rarely ever that we even have a smidgen of a sight, just, just any inkling of a perception of how much honor and reverence we owe to the Lord every moment. And we walk in our own lives continually out of step of that. And we just barely ever get a clear sight of it. And yet He is patient with us. Our repentance will be imperfect. Who can discern His errors? It's a rhetorical question. No one can. You can't see all the ways that you need to repent yet. Yet. And if you, can, if you can't walk in a level of humility that acknowledges that that's the case, that you still have things yet right now that need to be set aside, that need to be crucified in your life, then I think you're presuming and you're in trouble. However, you should still want to be perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You shouldn't be just happy. You're like, well, I'll never repent fully. I'll never repent in a way that's fully acceptable. So I'll just hang out in unrepentance, in lackluster repentance, in non-zeal, and not repent. You can't do that. You still must strive. You still must seek to end in a better place like Peter did Number 6 you are not the point. The point of Peter's life is Jesus Christ and his patience and his mercy. And the Lord has ordained that your the point of your life would be the grace and mercy and patience of the Lord Jesus Christ, not you. We think and we're encouraged to think even in some sectors of Christianity that we are the main character in our story. And you're simply not. The great conclusion at the end of your life of someone reading through or an angel beholding how God has dealt with you your whole life is God is so patient and merciful. That's what He wants out of your life. and You've got to be okay with that. Why would God design a message and a way of saving the world and redeeming man to be this way? The Bible itself confesses that the gospel is foolish. It's a foolish message. The Gospel itself is a message of God's grace making us what we are in Christ. It's not that you will be a good enough person. It's not that you will have enough faith or good enough repentance to qualify yourself to stay in this thing. It is that He is sufficient, and aboundingly so from start to finish, So, friend, can the Lord Jesus save you? So if you will but trust Him, even if your trust is imperfect and weak? Yes. If He can save such a one as Peter, clueless and weak and denying as He was, then He can save you. Brother or sister in Christ, can the Lord use you? Can He resurrect your life from the mess that you've made of it, even since trusting in Christ? If He can forgive and use such a one as Peter, even at one point living at odds with the Gospel, in dire hypocrisy, needing to be rebuked, then He can still forgive and use you. You know, as I said, Peter made his final and lasting contribution to us as Christians after his greatest failures in writing 1st and 2nd Peter. Why would God do this? Why does God work this way? Again, to show that the sufficiency belongs to him. He is mighty to save and faithful to forgive. And to the proud in this room, Do you want your life to be a display of the scandalous, overwhelming patience and mercy of God? Or will you dig in your heels with your religious pride and believe that even as God has shown you grace, you've done more with that grace than anyone else? Let's close with the words of the seasoned, repenting, wiser, more contrite Peter. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your display of grace and mercy. Shocking and scandalous as it is in the life of Peter. Help us draw great encouragement that even if we have sinned as greatly as Peter, you are gracious to forgive and receive. May we trust your purposes and your plan and be about the business of repenting and trusting in you all the more. In Jesus' name.